0: If you're enjoying Hatch, you can support the show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. It can be a one-off thing. The money is going to be used to support the creation and the launch of season two. So if you're interested in seeing another season come to life, just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'd be so grateful. Hi, and welcome to Hatch. The podcast where we have conversations with creatives about starting something new. This week, we have Nick Stevens on the show. Nick is a multi award winning architect who's based in New Zealand. Alongside Gary Lawson, Nick is the founder of Stevens Lawson Architects. Their practice is celebrated for its innovative and cutting edge designs. The firm has won many awards over the years, including New Zealand's Home of the Year, which they have won a record of four times, as well as New Zealand's Architecture Medal, which is the country's highest architecture honour. Nick is an absolute creative force, and I'm so excited to chat with him and also learn from him. So welcome, Nick.
1: Hey, it's great to talk to you, Hannah.
0: So Nick, to start us off, I would love to hear a story of when you first discovered architecture or your flair for it?
1: Yeah, as far back as I remember, I was always drawing. And one particular instance does spring to mind, which was that I was having these nightmares with these monsters in them. And my mother, who was maybe a a little bit ahead of her time in in terms of art therapy, uh, decided to get me to draw the monsters and to externalise them. And so I would draw these very elaborate drawings of monsters and they all had names. And um it worked. The nightmares went away. But I think also I was I was very keen on the sand pit very early on. And <laughs> I um I moved on from turning buckets of sand upside down fairly early and, and uh moved into whole kind of town planning. And uh, would build roads and bridges and and uh, public buildings and split level houses, etc. You know, there was something going on. This was when I was still you know, around five years old or so, and that culminated many years later when I built a Sydney Opera House out of sand.
0: Wow! On At what M- kind of age?
1: Well, that was a lot later. That was um, <laughs> You'd that had was, some was, years
0: uh, of summers of yeah, practice. yeah,
1: yeah. That was that was when I I thought it's, it's time to try something you know really ambitious. Which is very ambitious in sand, I can tell you, because it's it's a building that uh, is not only sculptural but sort of overhangs quite a lot. And <laughs> sand doesn't generally like doing that.
0: That sounds incredibly challenging in that kind of environment, a sort of um, rush of wind and there goes half the uh, half the roof of the opera house. Yeah, yeah, you've
1: got to get the consistency right, I can tell you.
0: <laughs> so at what point did you realise that architecture was what you wanted to pursue?
1: Well, still... In those early years, I, I was onto this very, very quickly. It's, you know, I think I think there is something sort of hardwired into you um, with some things. And I do recall at our kindergarten in Morrinsville, where I grew up, my mother was on the committee, and she commissioned an architect from Auckland to do an adventure playground. And this structure was something that really took my imagination it was a hyperbolic paraboloid structure which is basically a kind of a twisted grid but made of all straight lines all incrementally shifting so this was like a timber lattice structure at the kindergarten and uh, I thought that was amazing and it was by uh, designed by an architect from Auckland and then I thought well that's something to be and that's is what I actually did become so.
0: So were you still in kindergarten at this point when you realized this is the career for me?
1: Yeah I know. It's outstanding. It's strange isn't it and I used to travel with my father down to Wellington to see his parents and down in Wellington there was a scene happening there in the 1970s uh, with architects and particularly Ian Athfield and Roger Walker who did these quite fantastical buildings very whimsical almost like Children's drawings of crazy modern castles, and they built them, and these were houses. And as a child, in the mind of a child, you know, to think that that could be architecture for adults seemed an extraordinary thing. So I was totally taken by that, and you know, from there, because I was so interested, I would be given, you know, that when I was ten or so, I'd be given books on great modernist Architectural masterpieces. You know, I knew my knew my Le Corbusier and my Mezzvanderro and my Alto. And that was a bit, I was a bit of an early starter.
0: Yeah, I, I'd say from the age of about four. Was there sort of one um, architect that you can recall that really took your fancy that you were mesmerised by? I just remember seeing some of Gaudi, for example, for the first time when I was quite young and thinking that's that's another level.
1: Yeah, well, lo- locally, I mean, it was. It was these two architects from Wellington. But internationally, you know, I would say Le Cabousier, you know, would be the one, you know, when I saw the pictures of his church at Ronchamp, I was, you know, totally taken with that.
0: And so then, of course, you went to architecture school. And which one did you go to in New Zealand?
1: I went to Auckland University School of Architecture. That was a few years later.
0: (laughs) Not at the age of four. Can we just (laughs) clarify that for listeners?
1: You know, I did, you know, a couple of times I sort of dabbled in thinking that I might do something else, like, you know, when I was a teenager I thought I was very into music and I played in bands and I thought that could be something I'd be really into, but I don't think I ever had any great talent for it, so um, that was that sort of t- took care of itself. And um, I was interested in filmmaking as well at one point, um, probably because of my experience working with my mother on documentaries.
0: Oh, so you worked with her on those documentaries? Uh,
1: no, I'm, I'm probably slightly overstating that. I was around <laughs> while she was working on the documentary. I was and on I, the and, set. <laughs> and I would, um, I would travel with her to some of the, the locations, yeah.
0: You went on to found Stevens Lawson Architects with Gary Lawson in 2002. I'm curious, did you always want to have your own practice? And also, how did you know that Gary was the right person for you to partner with?
1: Yep. No, I always always wanted to have my own practice, without a doubt. And I did that for about 10 years before Gary came to work for me at the time. And it was going very well. And I wasn't actually looking for a business partner at all, but uh, I did like Gary, and we got on very well, and then we started to collaborate on some of the projects. It was just quite an organic process, and we also just like to talk architecture. We, you know, there was a lot of discussion going on, and and it was it was fun to have somebody to actually bounce ideas off, and so it just developed from there. And then we sort of started hatching plans for you know how we could you know move from doing houses into public buildings and and you know other kinds of projects. It's fun to have. A partner in crime that's you know it's fun to have somebody to do this with and it just really gelled but I guess the thing is that I knew it would work because it sort of just worked naturally and from mm. that flowed uh, the formalization of you know becoming practice partners in architecture.
0: So do you think you and Gary are always quite aligned in your approach or are you a bit more yin and yang?
1: Look, I would say we're a bit of both. You see you've got to be different enough to make it to make the collaboration interesting to make it worthwhile. If you're the same, you're sort of you're bringing the same thing to the party so but there has to be enough overlap. There's got to be enough that you both recognise when something is really good. so I think that is the beauty we're we're quite different we have different upbringings, different backgrounds. He's 10 years younger than me. So it sort of took took away that sort of potential competitiveness you might get with two people of the same year. It just, we don't analyze it too much, how it works, because we almost don't want to, you know, ruin the spell. Because it just, you know, it just kind of does work. I think if we overanalyze and said, well, you do this and I do that, and then it wouldn't work so well. It is a very kind of organic, fluid thing. It does involve a certain amount of respect for each other and a willingness to find the solution that we both really like. And if we can't totally agree on it, we keep working until we find something we do both agree on. So that's kind of the rule. Um, How long can that take? Well, no, no, we work very quickly. I mean, that, that is the other interesting thing about collaboration. If, you know, obviously the collaboration has to be with somebody who it works with. Yeah, in terms of how, how long how long it takes, no, it's it's a quick process because there's a lot of discussion and sort of um, quick fire feedback. So you've got a, you've kind of got like an internal feedback loop built into it, like a self critique built into the process. So when we finally get to an idea we really like, it's it's we think it's a stronger idea because it's had that level of uh, critique that has been looked at from what well, at least two different sides.
0: You're also very well known for using metaphors of nature in your designs. A really vivid example or a very well known example is the Waiheke Beach Project that won the Home of the Year Award in 2013. And this home metaphorically looks like pebbles or shells scattered on the beach and it's just quite stunning. So I'm curious around whether the surrounding environment is often the starting place for your designs or where that comes into the process?
1: Yeah. Now, the site and the context for the buildings are fundamental for us. And we're looking to create a sort of a unique experience or um, in a unique architectural expression um, for each project. And so we're looking around for what is unique and specific to do with the location. And that gives us sort of some sort of touchstone to work from. And when we started building all around New Zealand in different, in different kinds of landscapes, we, we had to really start to think about what would make this building specific to this place. You know, you don't want to build, you don't build the same style of building in a suburban street in Auckland than you do beside a lake in the South Island and so we really wanted the buildings to have this unique spirit of place. They to somehow capture the uh, the spirit of that place, and that's why we often look for these sort of nature metaphors. Like for instance, in the the Te Kaitaka house in Wanaka on the shores of the lake, we were very taken by the rolling, the rolling sort of slightly angular tussocked hills and we sort of imagined that that was almost like folded paper like like origami so we sort of made the the idea for the house almost like a like a piece of origami and it was made of weathered timber and it sort of toned exactly into the the tones of the the golden long grasses of that area
0: yeah, that's just one of your most beautiful homes, I think. It's Thank just, you. and I actually was um, going uh, deep into sort of BBC and Netflix earlier this week because it features on World's Most Extraordinary Homes in yeah. the first ever episode of series one. Oh, is that true? Is, I didn't know it
1: was on the first one. That's yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Great.
0: I'm also curious around that same Waiheke Beach home that you just spoke of earlier. Um, it has been said that you move around the rooms. In a cinematic sequence, there's a sense of discovery, surprise, and delight. And I just think that sounds so beautiful and interesting. Could you share a bit more about your creative process? How do you get to a point of designing a home that sort of mirrors that cinematic sequence? And could you explain a bit more about what that cinematic sequence of a home or building actually means?
1: Yeah, well, it's sort of like you're designing with the human experience in mind. So it's, it's not thinking purely about the object of architecture, but it's actually how the, the architecture is experienced. And we're thinking very much about that experience in terms of creating atmosphere. We're thinking about the sounds you hear, the smell of the house. And very much when we talk about the cinematic sequence, it's, it's very much about how you move through the house and around the house. So you see photographs of houses, and they can look really beautiful, but it's not actually the way they're experienced. They're experienced with, you know, even if you're sitting still, your head is moving around, but
0: you want to do that in a
1: in a particular way. There's the threshold of coming through the front door. Do you reveal the view straight away? Often not. It's often a little bit of a tease, um, a glimpse through, but not the whole thing at once. Creating a sort of sense of mystery, All all great art, I believe, maintains a sense of mystery a little something a little bit unknown and so you don't want to just give it all over in the you know at the first instant so you might think about how you move through that house you might look to the left there might be a courtyard there there might be a view in some other direction uh thinking sometimes about ideas around zen gardens where you sort of look at the lake the lake goes around the corner and the illusion is that the lake goes forever but if you walk up to the edge the lake might just go for about two metres around the corner. So there's all sorts of formal um, manoeuvres you can make to create ex- to create more mystery and interest.
0: And for the everyday person who walks through that home, of course, that isn't so apparent. You're just experiencing it and it must be almost operating on quite a subconscious level that you're like turning a corner and there's a slight surprise there. Um, yeah. So there's a magic to kind of making that, subtle almost
1: that's right you're not wanting to make it that foreground no you're what you're, you're wanting it to be a, a felt experience not a, not even not even that conscious i've done quite a lot of um, judging on architecture awards and i can see photographs i can think that looks really amazing and i might go there doesn't feel special but you know there might be something that doesn't actually photograph that well but you go through it but the way it makes you feel is extraordinary that's really what you're after. You're wanting people to feel moved.
0: I'm wondering, where do you often turn to for inspiration and sort of unique takes on things or ideas? I'm sort of envisioning a, a room full of architecture and design books, kind of floor to ceiling.
1: Well, look, you know, obviously there is the history of architecture itself, which is you know an, an incredibly rich history. Um, you know, I love the Renaissance. I love medieval periods. Um, I love all sorts of indigenous indigenous architecture. So it's a there's an incredibly sort of rich palette uh, to draw from from that point of view. But there's also things outside architecture which I think it's important if you to to kind of get a fresh view. You've got to you've got to sort of almost stand outside your field and look back at your your field from another place. I think you know nature is obviously a, a place we look to. Driftwood is weathered on the beach or whether, as we talked about before, you know, pebbles are cast down on the sand. Um, the way the, the wind might shape trees. Um, travel is, is a source of inspiration, just other cultures. But I would say art is a particular interest, mm. particularly, I would say Colin McCann in New Zealand, the, the great sort of modernist New Zealand painter, his work, his, formal abstractions of landscape, uh, we find really inspiring. There's a real boldness to it. There's, some, there's a simplicity at one level, but there's incredible depth as well. It's a depth of feeling and the way it works with light and shadow, etc. So, yeah, that, that would be a very strong influence.
0: I love that. And off that question of influence and inspiration, I've also heard that you're surrounded by quite creative people in your life, your wife and brother-in-law, for example, are both photographers and you also have close musician friends. So I'm wondering how they influence you in your work or whether it's sort of on, on more of a subconscious level, maybe.
1: Yeah, no, it's true that I live in a bubble of people who make things. And um, <laughs> It's funny they, how
0: they get drawn to each other.
1: They, they, and they make all sorts of things. So it's, yeah, it, it's, they photographers and musicians and filmmakers and... It's a wonderful community to be in, and I would say that my wife, Deborah Smith, who is a photographer and artist, is a huge inspiration to me. She's a total creative force, Wow! Um, really, and has opened my eyes hugely uh, to the world of art in, in, in many art forms over many years. So, you know, when you experience great art or music or cinema, you recognize a quality in it that you would like to achieve. You know, when you listen to a great Nick Cave song, it's something you feel in the great art, and you would like to feel that in architecture if you can. You know, great art sort of make, it makes you try harder for a start. You know, if you're surrounded by that, it gives you a feeling and you want to achieve that. Also, I've collaborated with artists as well, and in particular, John Reynolds, New Zealand painter, amazing painter. We've worked on on a on a public square in Auckland together, and we've worked on a couple of buildings as well. So he's an inspiration to me too.
0: It sounds like you'd have amazing uh, dinner table discussions. And
1: <laughs> well, you, you won't have a, you won't have a more amazing dinner party discussion than with John Reynolds. I can tell you that. He should, be on every, he should be on everybody's dinner party list. Dexterity of mind and entertainment value.
0: What do you think of the projects you've designed when you go back to visit several years later? Is it sort of that sense of visiting an old friend again?
1: Yeah, it is It is that sense. It's, it's, it can be very unusual because for a period of time, probably about three years, you knew this project totally inside out. Well, you knew it before it even existed, actually. So it's, you know, you've dreamt it up, you've built it and it's occupied your mind intensely for a period of time. And then you hand it over to some clients. Well, if it's a house, you kind of hand it over and you may not go back there for a long, long time. So, but you know it so well. So it's a very, it's quite an uncanny feeling when you go back, actually, but you do go back with fresh eyes, which is quite wonderful. You can sort of, you know, you've stepped back and can sort of see it in a way that you couldn't see it when you're totally immersed in it, not seeing the forest for the trees, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, with the public work, the beauty is you can visit it far more often. So um, the concert Mm -hmm. hall we did at Iona College, it's a building I can go back to and and see performances, you know, a number of times. Public square is the same. So, you know, that's one of the beauties of doing public work. Of course, you know, you can, you can visit your clients in their houses as well, but, you know, it's a lot of people, you know. Life is short.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you have a, a standout sort of most rewarding project that you've worked on? I know that's probably a difficult question because there must be so many.
1: No, it's not difficult. There's, I mean, there's a, I'll give you two. I mean, one is the Blythe Performing Arts Centre, which is the concert hall I told you about, that is in Hawke's Bay, and it's one of those just perfect size projects. It's what you call sort of like an intimate public building. Um, it's a, it seats about 400 people. And it, well, it turned out very well, you know, so I'm, we're very, very happy with it and, and achieves all those things around um, you know, sculptural form and the cinematic effect of moving through it, etc. But what it does have... Over other projects is that it has this other ingredient which is music, and you can love the building for all its um, visual and formal qualities, but when you sit in in the auditorium and the uh, the pianist starts tapping out the notes in the Fazioli piano, and the the opera singer comes forth with some extra, you know some extraordinary performance. The, the building which is designed for sound suddenly just leaps to life in a, a totally extraordinary way where you feel quite emotional. And um, it's just one thing that you get with these types of public buildings that you have this, this other level of performance, which it's another dimension to the architecture. So I do love that. But I do want to talk about one other project because I'd, I'd have to say that this is the most important, most significant work probably I'll ever do and it's under construction at the moment, and it's for the Auckland City Mission. And it is a it's a very ambitious social housing and social services building to house homeless people and to and provide all the wraparound services, you know, detox centres, medical centres, community cafe, community centre, crisis care, all within one. Very large building. It's a ten-story building in the heart of the Auckland CBD. It's it's a project that's incredibly close to my heart and and, and very much close to my ethics that you know, architecture is is not just luxury goods. You know that like architecture is for everybody should be for everybody.
0: Wow, it mm. it so, is it sort of one of the first of its kind in New Zealand to be providing that sort of extensive number of services yeah. all in one central place. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's um it's groundbreaking in global terms in that sense. There are there are there are you know projects with um homeless housing and a certain amount of wraparound facilities around the world, but this there's nothing as comprehensive that I know of that has uh, all of these services in one place, the medical and the detox and and uh, and not and not also I guess it's unusual that it also invites. People into it as well, so there would be people living in it, but there would also be people just coming in uh, off the street, or refugees, or even open to community groups to hire out a space. You know, it can even be the, you know, the yoga group from you know central city or anything. So, the idea is that it's not hidden away. It's not a. It's not some hermetically sealed building where all this stuff goes on that nobody knows about. But it's actually engages with the life of the city and the community itself. So, I mean that's that's why it's very unusual.
0: It's phenomenal. When does it open?
1: Well, one year and one year's time it'll open.
0: And I can imagine that there would be so many unforeseen complexities when you're designing a space for such different needs, but obviously just so incredibly rewarding when you when you just really think about what the impact will be on all of these
1: lives. Yeah, totally.
0: When you experience creative ruts or blocks, what are your mechanisms to move through those? And sort of what advice would you give to others around that?
1: Well, what I would say is that is one of the beauties of having a collaborative practice that you don't really get the blocks in the same way because you've got each other to spark off. I think a lot of creative blocks come from, you know, often creatively like people being alone in a room, and driving themselves a bit crazy and not, you know.
0: staring at the walls. staring at the
1: walls, going down a few blind alleys. If you're working with somebody, of course, what you do is you start talking and you start throwing ideas around. You brainstorm and that always leads to something. So I I would say that that's not something we have suffered from, actually, and I would say that is the reason.
0: The power of collaboration and differing views. Yeah. Why do you do what you do?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, if, uh, yes, you've totally left me speechless on that one. Um, why do I do what I do? Um, I do it because I love it. I've just got a real passion for architecture. What, but, you know, what, what, what drives it exactly you know, it's hard to know. I'd, I'd probably need to be psychoanalyzed.
0: Well, a passion from the age of four in a sandpit sort of does speak volumes, I guess. Mm.
1: Maybe, maybe I could say that. Um, you know, I'd love to make the world a, a better place. That might be a sort of a, an underlying, underlying kind of motivation. You know, the, you know, just the the impulse to create things. You know, interesting things, um, inventive things. It's just there in in all fields in humanity. So Hmm. this is just my particular branch of it.
0: Hmm. What do you think the most important qualities are that make someone a successful architect?
1: I think vision is key. I mean, you've literally got to be able to imagine it before you can ever make it.
0: Which I just think is like a superpower in itself. I really do. (laughs) Well,
1: yeah, I mean... It is kind of pretty cool when you, when you think about it. But, but vision is one part of it. But then you do have to be able to communicate that. And you've also got to be able to persuade people that it is a vision worth pursuing. So, you know, that, that sort of comes as, a, as, as part of the whole package there. Trustworthiness, I think, is, is key. That your clients really need to trust you. You've got to have empathy. You have to be able to have empathy for your clients, for, you know, other stakeholders. You could even take that to the, to the extent of empathy for your environment, for mm. um, the historic context. Determination would be the other really key one. I mean, with some of these public projects, you know, you can actually face some overwhelming negativity from some, you know, elements of the public. Mm. And you, you have to be able to outlast the doubters, you know you've you've got to be determined and and also you know you projects can suffer cuts by uh, what is that? a thousand cuts <laughs> death by a thousand cuts <laughs> you can suffer death by a thousand cuts quite easily because the forces of mediocrity are always there they're always trying to drive drive an idea back to something more mediocre. What might and, that
0: look like in practice
1: oh that might be that might be sort of um. Uh, regulations from the council, you know, trying to, you know, saying we well, can't do that because because of this funny rule and this funny rule, and it could even be client-based. In terms of public projects, because you often have to go out for consultation, I mean, it's just the general public, you might get all sorts of um, left-field criticisms coming. So there is a, theres there's got to be some determination to hold the line
0: mm. and
1: not let the project get watered down and devalued.
0: That's so true and as an architect you must have visited an incredible number of interesting homes and buildings throughout you know your career and your life and I'm wondering do you have one that has just really blown you away that really stands out to you?
1: Yeah I'm going to give you more than one though. Please. Um, (laughs) Peter Zumthor did Design a chapel called Bruder Klaus, which is a little chapel for some, some Christian brothers out in the countryside. And it's such an extraordinary idea for a building. Because what he did was he built, imagine a sort of a teepee made of vertical logs. And, but they formed a sort of shape and plan of a, like a teardrop. They, they were propped up. And then he poured like a huge block of concrete around the whole thing so that the timber was the formwork for the concrete. And then he lit a fire inside and burnt out all the timber. And so all you have is the imprint of these timber logs, blackened (laughs) and it's open to the sky with an Oculus at the top. It's a tiny little chapel. I've been there and only takes about 10 people. So, you know, like an extraordinary idea for a building more recently, I visited Japan, and I'm very, very taken by this building, the, the town hall in Honmura on one of the art islands, on, on the, the island of Naoshima, uh, which just is one of the you know most extraordinary places to visit on earth, I think, if you're interested in art and architecture. And uh, this building is by the architect Sambuichi, a young Japanese architect, and it's just a fascinating building where he takes a traditional Japanese form of a building but does something to it to make it so modern and in, in feel. And then environmentally it engages with the with the weather in a very unusual way in that it, the wind kind of blows through the top of the building and sucks all the air out of the building so it's all naturally ventilated, really taking sort of enviro, environmentalism and sustainability to a sort of whole new poetic level.
0: I think I'm going to go in a deep rabbit hole after this conversation, Nick, and to be exploring all of these buildings and working out oh, how yeah. I get there.
1: Yeah, you, might have, to, you might, have to, might have to wait a couple of years, but they'll still be there. <laughs> mm.
0: What does phenomenal architecture mean to you?
1: Well, I think like all art forms, we really want architecture to move you like all all great art moves you in some way, and I think great architecture has to do that, to make you stop and to feel. You know, it could be some amazing sculptural form. It could be just the gravitas of the building, the sheer sort of weight of it, the way that the light falls to a, into a building, the atmosphere it creates. It could even be a very intimate, poetic moment. But I think, you know, the, the main thing is that you feel moved. I think it's got to offer fresh insight. I think, you know, to be a a really extraordinary building, it has to sort of give you some sort of original perspective, somehow change your perspective.
0: So, Nick, what profession would you like to have if you weren't an architect? And you have touched on a couple earlier in the podcast, but I'm wondering what the one would be.
1: Yeah, I know. I, I said that I did sort of flirt with music and... Thought about filmmaking at one point, but no, I think now I'm um, a painter. I would, I would definitely be a painter.
0: Could you describe the industry in three words?
1: Probably not in three words, but it's, you know, it's an art and it's a science and it involves anthropology, psychology, commerce. You've got to run a business. So it's multifaceted, which is why it's so interesting, I think.
0: What are you not very good at?
1: Driving. My wife tells me I'm very bad at driving, but I tell her that I'm very good at parking. I'm very good at going backwards slowly.
0: What's a song you'll never get sick of?
1: Into My Arms by Nick Cave. It's the most most moving love song.
0: What is your greatest fear?
1: Falling. I don't have a fear of heights, just falling. As long as I've got something to hang on to, I'm fine. (laughs)
0: What quality do you most like in another person?
1: Humanity, generosity, joy.
0: You're speaking to 16-year-old Nick. What would you say to him?
1: Follow your passion. It's the only way you're ever going to be any good.
0: Those are fantastic last words, Nick Stevens. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show, so thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you, Hannah. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Hatch. If you're enjoying Hatch, you can support the show through the Acast supporter feature. Donations received are going to be used to support the creation and the launch of Season 2. So if you're interested in seeing another season come to life, just hit the link in the show notes to support now. See you again next week for another episode. Bye.